Our sermon text this morning is Leviticus 6, uh, verses 8 through 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the earth, hearth upon the altar, all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen trousers he shall put on his body. And take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Then, then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. This is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take from it his handful of the fine flour of the grain offering, with its oil and all the frankincense which is on the grain offering, and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. And the remainder of it Aaron and his son shall eat with unleavened bread, it shall be eaten in a holy place. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering. All the, all the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall be a statue forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you for gathering us um, together as a body to hear the preaching of your word. Pray that you open our hearts uh, to your word. Let us receive it with joy. Let us receive it with conviction. Uh, pray that you uh, place your spirit upon Roger this morning. Let him preach with boldness, uh, confidence. Uh, let him preach from wisdom from above. I pray that you open up the unrepentant hearts to show them a, a need for a shepherd. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The first five chapters of Leviticus, what we've covered so far, through the very beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, provide instruction on sacrifices to the Lord. These were instructions for the people of Israel on how these offerings were to be performed. As I've just mentioned last week at the beginning of chapter 6, one through, verses 1 through 7, we covered the last of the trespass offering. And we could probably make an argument of whether that, that chapter was put in the chapter separation was put in the wrong place because now, starting with the rest of chapter 6, verses 8 through the end of chapter 7, we are covering those same offerings, again, the major offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And we're covering those again. So why are we doing this? Why is God covering these, putting these in his word? This is not simply duplicating the same thing. And God does that sometimes in his word. Sometimes he will repeat things over and over to show the importance. And there are some examples of that today. But that is, although he is repeating it, there's a difference here. 
chapters 1 through 5 were instructions for the people, the people who would bring the sacrifices, the people of Israel. And as we start here in verse 8 of chapter 6, God is giving specific instructions for the priests. So starting in chapter in chapter 6, verse 8, through the end of chapter 7, he's walking through these same major offerings again, in the same order, but he's giving it to a different audience. He's giving it to the priests and the instructions on how they should conduct those offerings. So why is this important? Why is it important that it's for a different audience, for the priests and not the people? So we think about pictures in the Old Testament. And we have to be careful with pictures because there are pictures of things that can mean more than one thing. Right? We've talked about the burnt offering as a picture of hell. And we also talked about it as a picture of Christ's atoning death. And so, remember, they're shadows. We don't have the complete picture and so they can mean different things and if we take them down to the logical last point they don't always they they won't always make sense but one of the pictures of the priests in the old testament is believers so as peter refers to uh to um to the priests in first peter twice once he calls it a holy priesthood and the second time a royal priesthood And so for the believers here today, that's us. That is us. And so these instructions are a picture for all of those who trust in Christ. So we should consider that today as we walk through this word, that we are the audience for this. We are the audience for this picture that God has created as we we walk through the five major offerings once again. The portion that we'll talk about today, that the, the, the verses talk about today, deal with the burnt offering and the grain offering. But in doing so, it also mentions the other three major offerings. The sin offering, the peace offering, and the trespass offering. And so I thought it would be helpful this morning, having gone through all of those offerings from the people's perspective, and as we transition to walking through them from the priest's perspective, to do a brief review of all of those major offerings. So first, the burnt offering. And again, reminder that these are shadows. So the burnt offering is a picture of Christ making atonement for the elect. It's clearly a picture of substitutionary atonement. One of the important things that we need to remember about the burnt offering is that the burnt offering is the offering that gives access to all of the other offerings. Without the burnt offering, we cannot access the peace offering, the trespass offering, the sin offering, all of these others. And so it's really important not to miss that that the burnt offering is the foundation for all of the other offerings, and without these we can't have the others. So Christ's atoning death makes all of those possible. Another aspect of the burnt offering is that anyone could bring it. Remember when we walked through that text, that word for you shall bring it meant anyone. That meant women, men, children, all ethnicities. 
Christ's salvation is open to all. It's whomever he chooses. And that idea of the burnt offering making atonement. That means a transfer of responsibility. Christ took the responsibility for our sin, for those he saved, when he bore the cross. The other thing that the burnt offering is a picture of, which we'll talk about a lot today, is a picture of hell. We've talked about this many times. Someone must be the sin offering. Excuse me, someone must be the burnt offering. It's either Christ in our place, or it's that individual themselves. Someone is going to pay for the sin of men, and it's going to be either us or Christ. Some aspects of the burnt offering is that it burns continually. Think about the eternity of hell and the continuous and unending anguish. Pain and suffering in hell never, ever ends. It goes on forever and ever. And God has prepared that judgment. Matthew 24, excuse me, 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The church today doesn't like to talk often. Many churches don't like to talk about God's judgment. God prepared a place for judgment. So now the grain offering. The grain offering is a picture of the word of God. Again, his word is for everyone. How we treat his word testifies to what we think of God. Do we handle it with care? Do we take it seriously? That reflects what, what we think of God. The word requires the spirit of God to be an acceptable sacrifice. Remember when they offered the grain offering, it would have the oil on there. And we'll talk about that in some of the texts today. God gives his word to draw attention to himself. God is about his own glory. And so his word glorifies him. It draws attention to him and who he is and his, and his works. We are not to change the word of God. Especially to try to make it more acceptable to men. And again, we see this often. We see a watered down gospel preached. We see not very much talk about sin. God commands us not to change his word, to alter his word, not to add to it, nor to take away from it. And the grain offering is meant for nourishment of the priests. It's part of their sustenance. And so if we think of that picture we just talked about as the, the priest as a picture of Christians and God's word nourishing them. We should be nourished, those of us who are believers, we should be nourished by the word of God. That should be our sustenance. Now the peace offering. An important aspect of the peace peace offering is that Christ is the peace offering for all, not just believers. 
And let's be careful with that. That doesn't mean that we all eventually get saved. This is not about universalism. But that Christ's death is not only for salvation, but it's to take away sin in the world. And so Christ's death, symbolized partially by the sin offering, has real effects on the world. He complained the whole, he has completely changed the entire world because constrained sin produces real blessings. So what are some real examples of that? It's 2,000 years after Christ, how is the world getting better or is it getting worse? Well, we know if we look at the broad span of history, it's getting better. So some examples we've had from those close to us. In the past few weeks, Caleb Lapore and Miss Gigi both had medical conditions that 100 years ago, and, and probably less than 100 years ago, would have killed them, without question. They would, they would have died from those illnesses. And that is an example of Christ restraining sin and that bringing blessings to the world. Or think about the Reformation. Jonathan talked about this at Reformation Day, how as, as, the, as the true word of God spread through European countries, it was a reversal of the Tower of Babel. You had countries where they had multiple different languages. And through the translation of the Bible and God's word spreading, it brought, the, it brought a common language to all of those countries. And the literacy rate went from maybe maybe 5%, maybe 9%, drastically increased. An example of God's blessing. So we need to remember that salvation is not just being delivered from hell. But for believers, it's receiving blessings because we're at peace with God. As believers, we are also called to be a peace offering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, tells us how to be a peace offering. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slanders of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Living in the world peaceably, that is a way that, as believers, we are a peace offering. Next, the sin offering. So the sin offering addresses two types of unintentional sin. The first is congregational sin or community sin. And the second is individual sin. And if you remember that that individual sin was broken down into three types of individual sin. It was for the priests, and in this order, for priests, for rulers, and then for the common people. And as we talked about, the sin offering is a picture of justification. It's a picture of being saved. Jesus came to destroy all sin, and to make a people for himself, a people of God, and a people for God. And we need to re- remember and remind ourselves that he died for his church, 
Yes, he died for individual salvation, but individual salvation is is not the entire point. He died to make a church for himself so that he would be glorified. Salvation is not, yes, we should be joyful, we should be thankful, we should be grateful that he saved us. But the important part of that is that it glorifies God. And we learn through the sin offering that all sin matters. Seemingly small and unintentional sin still must be atoned for. We read these passages like if you stepped on an unclean animal and you killed it and you, you came in contact with it, that made you unclean. And then you realize later that you had to make atonement for that. And I think God is showing us here that all sin matters. Even if we don't do it on purpose. Even if it seems like to us something that, well, that's not really a big deal. Why should we worry about that? Because it's sin. And all sin is offensive to God. And we should deal with sin. We must deal with sin. And when we do deal with sin, God is pleased when we stop sinning. God is pleased with the constraining of sin. And then the trespass offering. Trespass offering is a picture of sanctification. This is for believers. As God sanctifies us after he saves us. It's a reminder of the continual need for repentance. We're not saved and then we can go live however we want. We're not saved and then we have this perfect sinless, sinless life. We're saved to be sanctified. To be made more like Christ. And we need to be sanctified because we, are, we live in the world and we are defiled by the world. We need Christ as our continual trespass offering. And when we talked about the trespass offering, we were reminded that all sin is first and foremost a sin against God. But, but even though that sin is against God, we still need to be made, we still need to make things right with man. We need to, in some cases, pay restitution or penalties for the sins that we commit. So as we move forward, focusing on the the priestly responsibilities for these offerings, one that stands out throughout this passage is keeping the fire burning continually. It's a picture of eternity in hell. So now if we consider the priests as pictures of believers, we are to remind people of the judgment of God and their need for a Savior. So for those of us who are believers, and that we remember that we are the audience for this, this theme of the fire continually burning, and knowing that this is for us, what is our divine service? What are, what are some of the things that we need to do as children of God. One of them is pointing out sin, making sin known, making it clear that God is a judge who will judge. 
Now let's look at the text. Verses 8 through 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. So as this starts, it says, then, verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, So we saw this almost identical first line in chapter 6, verse 1. And this is clearly um, a change in topic here. God's shifting gears, so to speak, to say, we're done talking about the trespass offering, and now we're going to start talking about the burnt offering, again, from that different perspective. The perspective of the priests and the priest's responsibility as opposed to the people and their responsibilities. Leviticus chapter... Yeah. So the rest of, starting in verse 9, command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. So one thing to consider about what this says here is that the burnt offering is compulsory. It is required. As we walk through the other offerings, it says how to do it. And this obviously says how to do it from a priest's perspective. But it, it says you must do it. This is not optional. This is not a peace offering that you can bring or a trespass offering that you can bring. This is required. And we'll see here where he repeatedly points out how it's required in the, in the details of it. And again, this is now the instructions from God to the priests, the, the requirements of the burnt offering. And so when we consider the priests and their role, the priests were rulers over the people. But they needed to be led by God. They didn't just get to do whatever they wanted. They needed to lead based on how what God told them. And again, looking at the priests as pictures of believers, we can see the picture that we must be led by God, by his commandments, by his instruction, by his word. We need to resist the temptation to follow our own ways, to follow our own hearts. We know the heart is deceitful above all things, the scripture says. And so we should be looking to God in terms of how we are to, how we are to live. We should be aware of and cautious of our sin, sinful tendency to follow men. Whether it's our own deceitful heart, whether it's a famous preacher that we can listen to on sermon audio or YouTube, it's, whether it's our influ, influential friends, or even our own pastor. Instead, we should look to God in all things. Reasoning for ourselves, listening to teaching, preaching, and advice from others is not in and of itself a bad thing. We're called to edify one another, and we should certainly be listening to uh, people preach the word of God um, faithfully. We should be confiding in one another and helping and edifying one another. But ultimately, 
ultimately, we should always be careful to check it against the word of our, the word of God. He is our leader. We are called to be Bereans, to be sure that whatever is said, that it's consistent with the word of God before we accept it. The rest of verse 9, the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. So this is starting with, this is giving instructions for, the, remember there are two offerings per day, morning and evening, and this starts with the evening. So this is the evening offering. And it describes doing that offering and what should be done until morning, so through the night. And so if you think about a fire, if you've ever camped out anywhere, a fire doesn't burn through the night without tending. A fire will burn out. And so we have to assume that the priests, probably taking shifts, but they would have tended the fire throughout the night to keep it going until the morning because it was not to go out. And we'll talk about the morning offering in verse 12. But these twice daily offerings, what, are we, what can we learn from this? I think one, it shows an ongoing need for the forgiveness of our sin. So if you think about the, the evening offering, certainly at the end of the day, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would know if we go through the whole day, it would be really hard to go through the, the whole day without committing a sin. In the morning offering, so the time from the evening sacrifice until the morning, let's just Assume that we're sleeping all or most of that time. We, if we're honest, we know that can't be sinless either. But why? Why do all of us who have some self-awareness know that that would be impossible? So again, just, let's just assume that you slept most of that time and you woke up and it was time for the morning offering. Certainly, maybe we could forego a, a sin of commission maybe we won't commit a sin probably not but let's just let's just say we could but what about a sin of omission Matthew 22 verses 34 through 37 but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees they gathered together then one of them a lawyer Ask him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is, the great, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We can never fulfill that. Ever. We can never go a minute and probably a, a second and fulfill that commandment of God. It becomes really clear when we think about sin from God's perspective and not our perspective how badly we need a Savior, how badly we need atonement for sin, because we can never uphold that. And when we think about how our sin was paid for and think about the fact 
that Christ on earth through his entire life upheld that at every single second of his life and how short we fall of that standard. So we need atonement for our sins. And we need to understand, I think that's a good way for us to examine our pride and examine how far short we fall of God's perfect standard. So verse 9 also talks about the fire being kept burning. Again, we talked about multiple pictures, and I think there are some here. So first is the completeness of Christ's atonement. We just talked about how far short we fall in our sinful nature and how complete Christ's atonement is for those sins. But also the eternal fire of hell and the eternal nature of hell. So those pictures are there, but why, 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 would, why must the fire be kept burning? Why does God create this? There are some other reasons why. Leviticus 9, verses 23 and 24. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So there was no other, so remember, God started the fire on the altar, and he commanded that that would be the fire that would continue to burn continually. So there was no other source of fire that was acceptable. The fire needed to be holy. And very shortly after that, we learned how serious God was about that when Nadab and Abihu started it with a different fire. So God was, that was clearly an important picture to God. That fire needed to be holy. It also serves as a constant reminder of God's power to the Israelites and still does for us today. His power in saving and his power in judging. Salvation is only through the burnt offering. And it's a reminder of God's presence. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So in the Old Covenant, there needed to be continual offerings. But in the New Covenant, that's not needed. So what is the difference? We have these pictures of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because in the New Covenant... Christ is a one-time perfect sacrifice. We don't have to offer in the morning and the evening. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is the gospel 
That's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. The resurrection is absolutely important and critical. It verifies the efficacy of Christ's work on the cross. But the cross, it's the New Testament reality of the Old Testament shadows. And just like the burnt offering shows us the constant need for the forgiveness of sins, the cross shows us the price for those sins. The the sacrificial death of God's only son facing the wrath of his father. It wasn't just his death, it's that he received the wrath of God. So as believers, it's our duty to make people aware that there is a hell. It's our duty to make people aware of the seriousness of sin. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. A critical part of our priestly duty, of our divine service, is warning people of the coming judgment. And so, Think about that as we evangelize. Yes, we want to preach Christ as a Savior. But until people understand their sin, they won't understand the need for a Savior. Imagine I called you tomorrow and said, I'd like to take you to come visit an oncologist with me. Or actually, I want to take you as the patient to go see an oncologist. You'd say, No, thank you. I'm fine. I think I'll go to work. Now imagine you just got diagnosed with cancer. You would be on your way to the oncologist. You wouldn't wait for me. And so God is showing us here. We we need to understand the importance of sin. And our duty as New Testament priests is to make people aware of their sin. Not Not to throw sin in their face. Not to be mean, not to, to position ourselves as better than them, but to show them their need for a Savior just as much as we needed a Savior. As believers, we're also called to be living a living sacrifice. It requires long-suffering and endurance. Romans 12, beginning of verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So what is our reasonable service? Let me let Scripture interpret Scripture. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Our reasonable service is to follow God's law and to love our neighbors as ourselves. How do we do that? One way of doing that is to teach them about God's judgment. 
The judgment of God is what causes people to repent. And so when we preach a gospel that is just Jesus loves you and he, ta- he takes you the way that you are, we're not loving them. God can save anybody from anything. But he calls us to repent. And in his kindness, he, he enables us to repent. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 and 5. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And that holy priesthood, as we've talked about, is a picture of believers. And God builds us up. He enables us to be an acceptable sacrifice. So doing the work of God. Doing the work of God as believers is sacrificial. But he empowers us to do it. And so we should consider, especially the believers here, are we sacrificial in doing God's work? Do we make sacrifices in order to do the things that God calls us to do? Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, verses 1, verses 1 through 2. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Part of our sacrifice is to be long-suffering and bearing with one another. Are we? How about people that sin against us? Are we patient with them? Do we pray for them? Do we treat them as God calls us to? Are we loving to them in that we are bold to speak the truth? Again, not in a, in a way that's, that's not loving. We should always remove the plank from our own eye before we look at the speck in our brother's eye. We should be putting away our own sin. But we should also be confronting sin. That is part of our divine service. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So where it says a cloud of witnesses, We are that cloud of witnesses. We are part of that cloud of witnesses. Are we fulfilling our divine service? Do we keep the fire burning? Are we warning people of God's wrath and the reality of hell? 
I think about the ministry at the abortion clinic that we prayed for this morning and how our signs and, and what we say offend a lot of people, even people who are professing Christians. Are we loving those people who are murdering their children if we don't tell them what they're doing, if we don't tell them that they're sinning? Again, we should do it kindly. We should do it in a loving way, not in a condemning way, which is what we do. And we should be willing to help, which we do and we have. But we should be letting people know what their sin, that, that there is sin and that God judges sin. Because if we're not, we're not loving them. We're also call, called to endure, endure, to persevere. And persevering is not just not losing your salvation. It's just not a matter of I can't lose my salvation, although that is certainly a part of it. It's staying the course in faithfulness to God, in our faith and in our works. It's enduring hardships, and it's growing through trials. It's being grateful for, tri- for trials, because that's how God grows us. So this physical picture of tending the fire all night, the spiritual reality is that this is part of our divine service. God saves us to do his work. Verses 10 through 13. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen trousers he shall put on his body, and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on it. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. So in these verses here, there's a lot. There's a need for special garments. There's a need for changing garments. There's the care of the ashes, how, how the priests were to take care of the ashes. And then there's the morning offering. So starting in verse 10, And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body. So when we think about changing garments... We can go back to Genesis. God gives us a, an example here. Genesis 35, 2. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. So Jacob has his family do this when God orders him to go to Bethel. They go to Bethel and make sacrifice to the Lord there. And I think this is an early picture of the need to be clean when we approach God. And part of that is changing clothes. 
making ourselves clean and putting away idols. And so, why linen garments? God's very specific about the linen garments. Why is that important? Well, the first thing that's important about it is that it's prescribed by God. In Exodus 28, verses 39 and 43. Verse verse 39. You shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen, and and you shall make the sash of woven work. And then verse 43. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and and his descendants after him. As believers, God commands us to put on clothes of righteousness and be equipped to do his work. This again is another picture. And he, God def- explains the picture in Revelation. Revelation 19.8 And to her it was granted to be ar- arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So we're putting on the clothes to do God's work. And the clothes also represent the righteous works. And what is that work? Well, part of that work that we're talking about here is dealing with the results of sin. Widows, orphans, broken families, pain and suffering. Think about Nigeria. Think about the widows there who are oppressed, who are cheated, lied to, stolen from. Think about the children who've lost one or both parents. We're called to serve them. Or as I talked about before, the abortion clinic. Serving, by God's grace, mothers who have turned away and being available to serve them, to help them. We're called to do the work with dealing with the results of sin, wherever that is. And they're to be worn in the service of the tabernacle. They're holy and they require the priests to be ceremonially clean. Ezekiel 44, verses 17 and 18. And it shall be, whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their head and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. So again, something that seems like something very minor. Not even to sweat. So the linen is so that they don't sweat. It becomes ceremonially unclean. Linen is obviously a lot, a lot cooler and a lot more breathable than wool. And then putting on those linen garments, as we talked about the righteous acts of the saints. And the righteous acts are the fruit of being saved, not the cause of being saved. Let's remember that. 
And those righteous acts are, again, part of our divine service. And these righteous acts show that God's power is real and transformative. That's why we're called to give this service, to show God's power, to glorify God. So again, as we think about Nigeria, and you think about the how many legs have we replaced, how many people have we helped, the work that we're doing for the widows, that brings real credibility with the people there. And that's not why we do it. But when you see, if you've had a chance to talk to Zingak, and he, when he talks about the commitment of the church, that shows God's, that, that God's work is, is transformative and powerful. Because we're not just there, because we're, we're, because we're obeying God. We're not doing anything special. We're obeying God. And they recognize that. And they see that as sincere. Or think about Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry, bo- dry Bones. He brings those bones back to life. God is powerful. Or in Acts, Peter causes the lame man to walk. Paul does this as well. Are we wearing the righteous acts for the world to see God's power? Not to see our power, not to see our intellect or influence, but to see God's power. Exodus 30, verses 19 and 20. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. They shall wash with water lest they die. So to perform the divine service, the priests needed to be clean. They needed to be separated from the, from the, from the world by their garments. So new clothing, new garments. And by the washing of their hands and their feet. And we get an example of this in the New Testament. John 13, verses 5 through 10. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What am I doing to you? What what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but only, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. So are we making, are we making ourselves spiritually clean for our divine service? Are we purging the sin from our lives so that as we go out and do these works, that we are clean before God? Are we washing our hands and our feet? 
So verse 11 continues to talk about the garments. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments. So the changing of the garments was to take the ashes outside the camp. Why? Well, part of this is showing that we are a separate people. Exodus thirty twenty nine, You shall consecrate them, that they may be most, most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. So the linen garments are part of the holy things. We, you know, this year we've walked through the, the tabernacle and all of the holy things within the tabernacle, and they are part of them. They're set apart for the service of the tabernacle. And God, and just in that way, God calls us to be different. To stand apart in the world. Just as the priests would have been very clearly, noticeably different based on the clothes that they wore. We're called to be different in the world in the way that we live. And we're called to not be defiled by the word. By the world, excuse me. Not to be defiled by the world. So when they changed out of their linen garments, they would do that when they would leave the holy place. Ezekiel 44.19 When they go out to the outer court, to the outer court, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers, and put on other garments. And in their holy garments... They shall not sanctify the people. So as they move away from the holy place, they have to remove the garments. They can only wear them in the holy place. Again, they change these garments so that they're not defiled by the world. And as believers, we need to live in the world to do the work of the priests. But in doing that, we don't always have to we don't need a sign that says I'm a Christian. We don't have to have something that always says I'm a Christian. Matthew chapter six, verse two. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. Christ has changed us if we are saved. Our actions, our attitudes, our lives should reflect that. We shouldn't be blowing the trumpet. We shouldn't need to blow a trumpet. And so again, as that audience of believers, we have to ask ourselves, would people see a difference in us without a sign that we're a Christian? Do our lives, do our actions bear evidence of our salvation. We need to remember that we need to desire a reward from God, not from man. And we should live in a way that our actions speak, that people notice something different, not to honor us, but to honor God. So the care of the ashes, I'm going to go back to verse 10 because the, the verses kind of split up, split things up a little bit. So verse 10 says, take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. 
So why are they, where are they being put and why? So they're put the, the, the side of the altar while the, temporarily while the chief priests change their garments in order to take the ashes outside of the camp. And we know this. Things are very specifically prescribed. God is a God of order in terms of where things go. And so these ashes would have gone on the east side of the altar. So when you think of that, if you're coming in from outside, you would have passed through the screen or the gate coming into the court of the tabernacle, and you'd be heading west. And so it's the side of the burnt altar furthest from the tabernacle. And it's separate from where the blood from the sacrifices was poured out. And it's in the same place where the crops and feathers of the birds were put. And, if, and it's the side of the, in the area of the, of the tabernacle that people would have come, upon, come, come upon first as they came through the courtyard to approach the bronze altar. So imagine you're, bring, you're bringing your, your sacrifice in and you walk through. The altar is there. And the thing that you see before that is the pile of ashes or in a pile, in a bucket, however they would have gathered them. They probably would have been hard to carry out by hand. So they were probably put into something. Um, but that's what you would have seen coming in to offer your sacrifices. The result of sin is a pile of ashes that have been burnt. And again, I'll ask the question, are we making clear to others the results of sin? Are we truly loving people? And in a loving way, pointing out the results of sin. So, the dispose, now the disposal of the ashes. So, how this, the order that this goes in is, first the ashes are separated from the bronze altar. So the, the ashes are on the altar, they're taken off the bronze altar. Once those are taken down, the priests change their clothes, and then they take those ashes, and they're separated from the tabernacle. So they're separating from the altar, changing clothes, and then taking them away from the tabernacle outside the camp. <coughs> Verse 11 says, Carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And what they're doing here is they're taking out the trash. They're taking it outside of the tabernacle. <clears throat> and those ashes are a picture of the result of sin. Romans 6.23, part of it. The wages of sin is death. The results of sin are there in that heap of ashes. And they're brought to the same place as the bull of the sin offering. Leviticus 4, verse 12. The whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, where the ashes are poured out and burn on it wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. So the priest's job is to deal with sin in the world by addressing sin lovingly, 
and dealing with the results of sin, sacrificially. Verses 12 and 13. And the fire in the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. So this, now we're moving into describing the morning offering, as well as the reiteration of the fire being kept burning. So in verses 8 through 13, it talks about the fire being kept burning three times. And if you actually read the text closely, it's actually not three times, it's five times. Because it says in verse 9, The fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Verse 12, And the fire in the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And then verse 13, A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. And so in five verses, God is telling us five times that fire is to not go out. It shall be kept burning continually. So when God repeats things, it's very important. And think about it as a, as a parent. I mean, how many times have we repeated things to our children? Or how many times have we started something by saying, I know you know this, but I need to remind you of this whatever that important thing may be. And so this picture of the fire continually burning is a very, this picture of hell, the picture of eternally burning, suffering in hell. It's also a picture of the substitute. It's a picture of the substitute in Christ, and Christ is our atonement for sin, but also for those who have no substitute. We talked about it at the beginning. We either have Christ as our burnt offering, or we ourselves serve, serve as the burnt offering. Verse 12 talks about putting the wood in order, and lay the burnt offering in order on it. So again, if you've ever done a fire, campfire, any kind of fire, a fireplace, the wood has to be in some state of order in order to burn efficiently, effectively. And we should see this as a preparation for judgment. God has made preparations for judgment. He's prepared a place for judgment. Yes, he's pre- we we ought we like to focus on he's you know, he's preparing a place for us in heaven. And for those whom he's saved, he's absolutely doing that and we should be we should celebrate that. But he's preparing and has prepared a place for judgment as well. And it's very clear. It's a picture of what Christ warned us of in the parable of separating the sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God has prepared the torment for those who do not lay hands on the substitute. 
for those of you who are unbelievers. Consider that. Consider an eternity of suffering alone in darkness in hell. Verse 12 talks about the peace offering. He shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. So remember, this is the morning offering. So they put the, they've slaughtered the lamb. They have the morning offering there. And so if, priest, if peace offerings are brought in throughout the day, they're to be burned on top of it. And remember what we talked about at the beginning, reviewing <coughs> the different offerings. The other offerings are not possible without the burnt offering. And so that peace offering is burned on what, what, what enables it. It's burned on top of that. And it's burning the fat. We talked about this when we talked about the peace offering. Representing the excesses of sin that need to be burned off. And they're burned up. They're either, they're either put to death when your sacrifice is Christ. Or they're fuel, or they fuel the fire of your punishment. If you are the sacrifice, and that's hell. And then the peace offering. The peace offering again is not a required peace offering. Peace offering represents blessing. So it's not it's not required because there's not a requirement for blessing, but there should be an expectation for blessing. Matthew 7, verses 8 through 11. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or that man is there, or what man is there among you? Who if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So salvation is not just being delivered from hell. It is that. But it's being delivered from sin. It's receiving blessings because we're at peace with God. Do we have expectations of spiritual blessings when we're at peace with God? And I don't mean health and wealth and all that nonsense. True spiritual blessings. Are we expecting those? Because God promises them. Verses 14 through 18. This is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take it from his handful of fine flour of the grain offering, with its oil and all the frankincense, which is on the grain offering, and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma, as a memorial to the Lord. And the remainder of it Aaron and his son shall eat. With unleavened bread it shall be eaten in a holy place. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. 
It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy. So the sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar. As a reminder, we talked about the grain offering being a picture of God's word. And he's saying here, everyone who touches it must be holy. God gives it to his priestly people to handle the word of God. His handful of fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense which is on the grain offering. Verse 15. So remember, only a handful of it is burned. It's that memorial portion. And when we think about, so the, the Christ is a title. The title Christ means anointed one. So we can't separate the oil from Christ, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So when we think about the holy offering that the priests were to eat, it was the flour, but it had to be mixed with oil. That flour needed to be mixed with oil. It's the word through the spirit that the priests are to feed on. And so as believers, it's the word through the Holy Spirit helping us to understand it. That is what we should feed on. Without the Holy Spirit giving us a heart of flesh, we can't understand his word. The Holy Spirit is what helps us to understand God's word. And for us to be nourished by the word, for it to be an acceptable tribute to God, it must be through the work of his Holy Spirit, not through our efforts. And the frankincense, if you remember, the frankincense was not to be eaten, it was always burned. And when frankincense is burned, it, you get that white cloud. So the frankincense is about the glory of God. He gave us his word for his glory. People are saved. We talked about this earlier. People are saved for the glory of God, to glorify him. Many of us have probably been through parts of the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism with our children. And the very first entry in there is what is the chief end of man it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever it's about God's glory it's not about us getting saved it's not about us getting a get out of hell free card it's about God's glory and it's through the consuming of God's word we see how God is holy Let's remember not to deceive ourselves. Sin interferes with the reading of God's word, which is why we should continually examine ourselves as we read his word before we read his word. And another thing to reflect on, is the glory of God our primary goal? Is that our chief end, to glorify God? Verse 15, and it shall burn and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. So an aroma that is pleasing to God. When we study God's word, when we speak of it to each other, it is pleasing to God. He blesses us through it. God's word blesses us. And we are also serving God when we study his word. 
And so the remainder of the grain, which would have been the majority of it, and the remainder of it Aaron and his son shall eat. It is part of their sustenance. I have given it as their portion. It is their inheritance. So Numbers 18, verses 22 and 23. Hereafter the children of, children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel, Israel, they shall have no inheritance. So the word, remember the Israel, the, the Levites, when they were divvying out the land, they didn't, they didn't get an inheritance in the land. God said that he was their inheritance. So the word of God is our sustenance and our inheritance. And we need to be thinking about it in that way. Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he gives us, God gives us strength to perform his divine service. He's our strength to deal with sin. The word of God gives us that strength. And it says, verse 17, it is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering. So this is the word being preached in the church. Remember, the sin offering we talked about is a picture of justification. Romans ten seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that trespass offering picture of sanctification Ephesians 2 5 husband loves husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word this is the power of God's word a word that works in both saving and sanctifying And lastly, the rules for eating or, or even touching the grain offering. Verse 18. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy. So how, where, and who of the grain offering? So how? It's to be unleavened. Or not baked with leaven. Leviticus 2.11, earlier in Leviticus, says, No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor, nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. This is a reminder that we should not mix anything with the word of God. We should not add to it nor remove from it. And where? It says only in the holy place in the court of the tabernacle. Because again, this is a holy thing. God's word is holy. And who? It says all the males among the children of Aaron, everyone who touches them must be holy. So one thing here. So why only the males? Why only the male children of Aaron? Because there are other offerings that the that women could partake of, 
So in the New Covenant, we're, we're both male and female priests, yet God gives details on who should teach his word. I think a text that we're all familiar with. 1 Corinthians 14, 33-35. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. The picture of God's plan for teaching the word in church. There are certain handling of God's word, the primary handling of God's word, he has given to men. And those are the roles that he's assigned. And then the offerings made by fire to the Lord, verse 18. While the smoke is what is pleasing to God, that frankincense being burned, it's produced by the picture of judgment by fire. And that offering by fire requires work. To tend a fire, to keep a fire, to do all the sacrifices, required work from the priests. The real reward, reward is the word of God, the receiving and understanding of it. Let's remember not to overlook the rewards that God has for us in his, in, our, in his word. And let's remember again that these are pictures for believers. Are we, are we engaged in our divine service? Some applications. The first one, I think, for for both believers and unbelievers, be a Berean. Seek and follow the words of God, not the words of men. Verify everything with God's word. Next one. Remember our need for the burnt offering. We We can't live without sin, not for a second. Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This makes repentance from ongoing sin available, the burnt offering does for believers. The next one. Are we fulfilling our divine service? As believers, it's our duty to make people aware that there is a hell. That is part of our divine service. We should not ignore that. Number four, we are called to be a living sacrifice. That means being long-suffering, having endurance, bearing with one another, bearing with people that sin against us, bearing with sin that are really annoying, with people that are really annoying. That means bearing, bearing with one another means exactly that. It means bearing with one another. It means putting up with something that we'd rather not. The next one. God commands us to put on clothes of righteousness and to be equipped to do his work. 
Are we equipping ourselves to do his work? Are we making those preparations? Number six, God's power is real and transformative. Are we wearing the righteous acts for the world to see God's power? Have we transformed our, has God transformed our lives and we are, are we living in a way that people can see that? Number seven. Are we making ourselves spiritually, spiritually clean for our divine service? Are we confessing sin? Are we repenting from sin? Are we turning away from sin? We need to continue to make ourselves spiritually clean. Number eight, are we making clear the results of sin? Are we boldly proclaiming to others what the results of sin are? Another one. Do we have an expectation of spiritual blessing when we are at peace with God? Again, this isn't health and wealth. This is spiritual blessing. Are we expecting that? Do we expect that when we open his word? Do we expect that when we worship? Do we expect to be blessed by God? If not, we should, we should ask God, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. We should ask for help to increase our faith. Another one, is the glory of God our primary goal? Is that our chief end? As we live our lives, as we raise our families, as we discipline our children, as we work daily, is our primary goal glorifying God or is it something else? And the last one, especially for the non-believers here. Who will be your sacrifice? Will it be Christ? Or will it be you? Consider that fire burning night and day, an eternity of hell. Consider who your sacrifice will be. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to worship you this morning, to study you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand our divine service to you, that you would help us repent where we fail to do that. Lord, I pray that you, that your Holy Spirit would overcome any errors that I may have made, that your Holy Spirit would Take your word to convict others and to, to en- encourage us, to edify us, to spur us on to do your work. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.